0: Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Is that all right? So I'm going to read the whole chapter. Well, you know, I'm learning as I go. Uh, 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 I've only been doing this, you know, for a long time, but I'm finally, you know, I, I get, you know, I get little corrections afterwards. So the Holy Spirit talks to me and I get I get little coaching words from the Lord. So thank the Lord for that, yeah. Uh, so last week I realized a couple things. One is my verse numbers were so small. Uh, I wasn't giving them to you as we went. That was terrible. Uh, Number two, I realized we never read the whole chapter. So then I'm like prompted by the Holy Spirit. Maybe just start by reading the whole text of what you're going to minister on. That's a good word, Lord. Thank you. So so, so we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to hover. Everybody say hover. So we are going to hover on one thing today, kind of one theme, potentially, if we have more self-control, we're going to try to hover on one thing uh, today, uh, as the, the thing to hover on. Okay, and uh, so to hold me accountable, because I know time is of the essence, uh, we are going to hover on the suffering. How many? Of you, that sounds joyful, right there, doesn't it? Yeah, that's good. Okay, we're going to hover hover on the suffering. Okay, brace yourselves. Chapter 2, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Remember, he's talking about, for this reason, the 15 things out of chapter 1 that showed the greatness of Jesus. He wasn't just a man. We knew him as a man, but he actually was also God, God incarnate. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We cannot let this slip through our fingers. You ever miss a good real estate deal? Somebody else got it? You let it slip through your fingers? You ever miss a good car purchase? That's what he's saying here. This is so amazing that, you know, God first sent others, and and, and now He's sent Jesus, and we can't let this slip through our fingers. This is our last opportunity to receive goodness from God. Jesus is that representative. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And we know that he's still doing that. Everybody say amen. Come on, let's say revival is here. Yeah. You believe that? The present of the Lord is with us, and he's still bearing witness to his word. Better than arguments are signs and wonders. Amen. For he did not subject To angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one is testified, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Let's pause for a moment. We tried to talk about that last week. We got snaggled up on all sorts of stuff. But just talk about that for a moment. What is man that you're mindful of him? Adam's put on the earth as Lord over the earth, Lord over all things. But Adam walks away. Adam falls. And when Adam falls, the enemy is empowered as the prince in the power of the air. But along comes the Son of Man. And remember, we told you this passage right here, he's quoting out of Psalm chapter 8, and he's saying, This is talking about the Son of Man. There's one coming. There's one coming. The Son of Man, he will be restored. And all things will once again be put under his feet. And we who are joined to him then will once again be restored with all things under our feet. That's the day and age we live in. And he called that day and age the world to come, by the way. He said, that which is about to burst upon us. So remember, this is written about AD 64. He's looking forward and they're saying that there is a period about ready to burst forth and the Son of Man will be the chief of that period. And when that bursts forth, those of us who are in him will also be crowned with glory and honor. We also will be those who are Seeing all things being put under our feet, and he talks about that a lot as we go forward. let's finish that particular verse verse eight, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him, but now yet we do not see all things subjected to him. so that's interesting. He gives us the dichotomy there or or the the viewpoint of of he's elevated but not yet everything has come under him. How many of you know just because we don't yet see all things under the rule or the dominion of Jesus, it doesn't mean it won't be. It doesn't mean it won't be. It will be. And that's where we talk about that this is progressively unfolding. fact is tomorrow could be richer for you in Jesus than today. Since the gospel, since the dominion, since the increase of Jesus is unfolding progressively, every day, every day can hold a richness that yesterday didn't have. How many of you know that's cool? Yeah, I mean, that's exciting. Tomorrow, actually, when we wake up tomorrow the perspective, the purview, the the mindset that we want to have is today is going to be greater than yesterday was. The partnership with Jesus, the increase of the kingdom, the grace on my life, the glory is going to be greater today than it was yesterday. Why is that? Because the kingdom is increasing. More of his enemies are being subdued. And if more of his enemies are being subdued, that means advancement for him and those who are knit to him. Isn't that exciting? Man, that's hope-filled right there. Isn't that good? What do we see? He goes on. And this is verse 9. We do see him who was made for a little while lower. So we don't see everything under his feet yet. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by, gra- by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what we see and what we've seen, and, and this is AD 64. This is AD 64. They're not walking in the glories of today, by the way. They're not walking in all the breakthroughs of today. They're not walking in all the peace of today. This is A.D. 64. What they see is, I mean, they're only 31 years on the other side of the resurrection. And what do they see? They see, and what they've been beholding is this one who suffered death for them. And this one who suffered death has now been raised up and crowned with glory and honor. But the death that he suffered, he suffered. And this is their hope in AD 64. He suffered that death for every one of us that we too would be raised up. He suffered a death for every single one of us that we too would be raised up, that we too would have this hope that we too would know of the power of God. For it is fitting, verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom... Did I say it right? For whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect... Now, here he's talking about the Father, by the way he 's going to shift for a moment he 's going to talk about the Father. Is that all right? It was fitting for him for whom are all things through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory that 's you and me. They were not there yet. We are already seated in him and with him, and yet many in that day had already been taken up. We're told that in Ephesians chapter 4, because in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that death was his passage in the Sheol, where the righteous and the wicked were both waiting for the Messiah to come and to overcome death, hell, and the grave. And so, we're told in Ephesians 4 that when he rose up out of Sheol, when he was shown to be victorious over death, hell, and the grave, that he took all the righteous captives with him in the glory. So there was a massive resurrection that took place of those that had been held in Sheol in the center of the earth because until he triumphed over Satan as a man, Satan had been in charge of death and was holding on to both the righteous and the wicked in Sheol. And Jesus tells us the story about the rich man and Lazarus, and how they were both in Sheol, and how the righteous had water, but yet they were still held in that place. Jesus came to pull them out. And it says that when he went up, this is Ephesians 4, that he brought those who had been captives in his train, and they went up with him. That's why today when we when we pass away, when this earth suit gives up, to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord because no longer does Satan control death. No longer do we need to fear death. No longer are we concerned about death. It's actually promotion. It's actually going up, not going down. It's something greater. Do you believe that today? Verse 10, it was fitting for him for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason... He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And these are quotes out of the Old Testament. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he, Jesus, does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." Wow. Amen. Let's say "Wow" together. All right. So I want to talk about this suffering a little bit. I want to I want to dive into some of this a little bit, uh, and we're going to pick it up at verse ten. Is that okay? Verse ten. It's interesting. This whole phraseology is interesting. I want to try to explain it, and uh, then talk a little bit about his suffering and how he suffered and why he suffered and uh, how we're called to suffer, if that's all right. So, picking up at verse 10, "...for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things," referring to Father, "...in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings." So, that word perfect doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. Perfect but it refers to him becoming a high priest who could identify with us, sympathize with us, and so to to come into that realm where he could fully sympathize, Then he had to experience a suffering like unto what we suffer. So the word here, perfect, in the original language it means to complete or to prove perfect and or to complete so here here this is this is him essentially though he though he could have had a position of representing us if he didn't identify fully with how we feel and what we've gone through then father's saying that the that the high priestly ministry would not be yet perfected. To perfect the high priestly ministry, he needed to feel what we feel when we are tested, when we are tempted. And this, this, suffering, this suffering is the first realm or the first level of suffering that he went through or the first that I want to refer to. To become a faithful and a merciful high priest is what our text tells us. He had to feel what we feel when we're tempted and tested. Suffering was the vehicle to accomplish that objective. I don't know if you've ever thought about, okay, now Jesus hasn't sinned. Uh, Jesus never did sin. Um, Wouldn't it have been just easy for Jesus just to deal with this stuff? I mean, how was he really how was this really putting him out if he never really fell to it I, have you ever had some of these thoughts and how how was it that he was tempted how did this temptation come to him and how did it how did it cause an emotion an emoting within him that was grievous and that actually he had to he had to Something within him had to rise up and resist. How'd that happen if he was sinless, if he was perfect? So, it's suffering that was the vehicle for that. That's what I want to present to you. It was suffering. Suffering was the vehicle wherein he was tempted and tried. And and I would venture to say that the levels of suffering that he endured were probably much higher even than what we've dealt with. Most of us haven't fasted 40 days without food and water. Now, many of us will go on a fast, but that fast will probably still have protein shakes or ice shakes or we'll still have, you know, berry shakes or we'll still have some smoothies. We'll, We'll probably still be you know, drinking some beverage and what have you, but I, I would venture to say that when it says at the end of Mark three, or Matthew three, Luke three, that he hungered, that that, that I, I would venture to say that that what he endured there was pretty significant. Are you with me? Suffering was the vehicle for accomplishing the objective of sympathizing with us, the lack of food, the lack of drink, the rejection of mankind. He had to feel rejection like beyond the highest. So, if you can imagine the most rejected person on the planet, Psalm 55, David writes about rejection, messianic. He was writing about personal rejection, my mother and my father. He's writing about... but. Jesus had to feel rejection at a higher level than all. And so we see that fulfilled in one portion at least where he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, and they hail him, Hosanna, as king, and a week later, everyone has turned away from him. Everyone's rejected him. His disciples have rejected him. His closest friend has denied him three times. He is at the very low, he's at the very depth of complete rejection. His family's not coming for him. No one is coming for him. Have you ever felt rejection? Jesus had to feel rejection at the very highest level. Suffering was the vehicle so that he could enter in. False accusation. You ever been accused falsely? The betrayal of those that he loved. How about, uh, how about abuse? Anybody ever been abused in here? Don't raise your hands. Amen. Enduring wrongful stripes and chastisement, right? So it wasn't just... And, 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 and here's what's crazy, too. We've got to remember, and he talks about this himself in Matthew 23. Matthew writes about it, that he was sent to the house of... He was sent to his people, he was sent to the people that he loved. In Matthew 23, he, he's saying prophetically out of that which he understands, and yet he's, he's in the incarnation. So he's functioning in the incarnation. He's not functioning as God, but he understands the heart of God, and it's the heart that he also is walking in. He says, how often? Have we wanted to gather you together like a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. You would not have it. You would not have your father. And now you're, re- you're rejecting his representative. We see in Matthew 26, he goes into the garden, right? And he says his heart is grieved. And, and the disciples, the three that are the closest to him, this is where we this is where we get our could you not tarry for an hour prayer right the disciples that are the closest to him he takes them into an inner court in the garden and they can't stay awake and they can't pray and they can't sympathize and they can't bear with he had to walk through this by himself and it says that in that garden he's actually in such deep agony in that garden over humanity over mankind over the cup that he has to drink that he's dying in the garden. The agony within the garden was a pre-death before the death. We know that he actually went through, he walked through a death in that garden with no one to hold him, no hand to hold him, no sympathy around him. And even his closest three, sleeping, he comes back. <laughs> could, could, you not, could you not tarry? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Could, could you not tarry just one hour with me? It's suffering. It was, it's suffering. This suffering was so that he could sympathize with us. And this is, what, this is what Paul is trying to tell the Hebrews. This is what Paul is trying to share with us, is that no matter what you're going through, the Lord has gone through something greater. No matter what you're feeling, no matter where you find yourself, the Lord has felt something of a deeper level. No matter what, you think you're the only one, the Lord has felt something. And, and, and He totally can sympathize with your feelings. This is the mystery and the power of the incarnation that God took on. He shares flesh and blood with us, that God took on flesh and blood, that God, Philippians 2, that He separated Himself from His divine attributes. That he did not reach into or partake of his divine attributes so that in the incarnation he could totally feel what we feel at the deepest part of trial, temptation, grief, suffering, loss. The second part of suffering, the second, second reason for the suffering, was so that he would come under our penalty. Number one, it's so that he could sympathize with us entirely. Any prayer you ever pray, every cry you ever cry, he can sympathize. He will not turn you aside. But number two, it's that he would come under our penalty. The suffering, and we're told in Isaiah fifty-three. The chastisement that we deserved came upon him. By the stripes that came on him, we are healed inwardly, outwardly, completely. Our broken relationship with Father is healed by that which came on him. So he suffered. He suffered that which we deserved. And thirdly, the third reason for the suffering was to prove his nature. This is interesting, and I want to hover here a little bit this morning. The third reason for suffering was to prove his nature, to become a faithful and a merciful, meaning that he will never turn you away, away, that when you approach him, you'll receive mercy, not judgment, To become faithful, a faithful high priest, meaning that every time you come, he's there. This is his, this is he ever liveth to make intercession. To become a faithful and merciful high priest, he had to endure suffering, the suffering of testing and temptation that required perfect obedience in the face of what he suffered. Perfect obedience. By the way, this is where Adam and Eve stumbled. This is how we got to the mess we're in. See, the first Adam and the last Adam, they're both created without sin. They're both created flesh and blood. They both have the same DNA. They both, they both are similar of nature. They, they, they both partake of humanity. And Adam and Eve, there was no sin in them. They're created in righteousness. They're created in righteousness. There's no sin in them. But when something attractive to the eye was offered, and the attraction was offered that, that took them off of what God had asked them to do, instructed them to do, not compelled of the sin nature, not compelled because they had to. Not, I mean, I mess up because there's something in me that's got to be crucified, right? There was nothing in them that needed to be crucified. But they saw the fruit, and it looked attractive to the eye. Their righteousness did not sustain them. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? It's the test of heat and pressure that identifies the substance of a thing. Suffering was the vehicle to test the substance of Jesus, his inner nature. Suffering was the open door to temptation. Jesus endured temptation as a man. That lack of food, that lack of drink, the rejection of mankind, the false accusation, the betrayal of those he loved, the wrongful stripes and the chastisement— the crucifixion, all of those things he suffered, and more than what we've listed, opened an alternative for him. There could have been an easier way. There was actually some choices there. There was actually some good-looking pathways, some fine-looking methods to solve what he was enduring. And if he would have just at one point, at any point, if he would have turned to one of those instead, instead of obeying what God wanted, instead of following what God had prescribed, what Father had ordained, if he would have turned to one of those, then he, like the first Adam, his righteousness, his trust in Father, his love for Father would have been marred, and we wouldn't be here today. There wouldn't have been a last Adam there wouldn't have been a new creation in the face of all of that. See, when, when we are tested through suffering, we tend to look for a way out. Our sinful nature tends to look for an easy way. Why? We don't want to suffer. Does anybody in the room want to suffer? We tend to look to cheat our way out of suffering, to lie our way out of suffering to steal our way out of suffering. But Jesus endured the suffering without taking the shortcut, without escaping, without looking for the way of escape. And this pressure of suffering tested his nature. It tested his trust in Father. It tested his love for Father. It tested his righteousness. See, we're really not righteous until we've been tested. Isn't that interesting? Righteousness is a status, and yes, it's imputed to us, but we prove it out in testing. And so it was with the first Adam, so it was with the last Adam, that his righteousness had to be tested. And that when his righteousness was tested and it endured, then he became, through the success of that suffering, a faithful and a merciful high priest. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you shall die. The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Church, the issue was not the fruit, the issue was obedience. The issue was obedience. Jesus tested through suffering, given alternatives that looked better, that looked pleasing, that looked like a way out, did not accept them. Likewise with us, likewise with us, we too are called now to a life of obedience. The highest, the pinnacle of his suffering was the cross. And now Jesus says to you and me, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, if a man will not take up his cross, he cannot follow me. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose your life, you'll gain it entirely. We now are called to this life of trusting Him fully, this life of obedience. It's not about the fruit. It's not about what you're looking at. It's not about how good it looks. It's not about where others are eating it or not. It's about what God's calling you to. It's about obedience to Father. This is how now we're called to walk out our righteousness. Yes, righteousness is imputed to us as a gift from the Lord, but every day, we walk it out. Every day we prove it out. Every day we take up our cross and we put to death the contradictions, the alternatives, the things that look wise, the things that look good and delicious and delightful, the things that look good for food, alternatives that aren't God's pathway for you and me. Can you say amen? Let's stand this morning. I'm going to ask the band to come. We're going to attempt to move into our first closing. Adam and Eve, their righteousness, their obedience, their trust, their love for Father, their devotion to follow His will fell short. It fell short. It fell short. And church, we're going to be tempted by things we feel we deserve. We're going to be tempted by things that others have. We're going to be tempted by things that look attractive. We're going to be tempted by things that Father has said it's not for you or it's not at this time. We're going to be tempted, and we too are called to enter into a suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, even as he, and we could go to it on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, even as he, Jesus, has suffered in denying himself, we too are called to suffer in the same way. We too have a holy calling to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him. We are called to enter into His suffering. Our suffering is putting to death the cravings and desires that are contrary to His holiness. Putting to death disobedience, putting to death distrust, putting to death rebellion and pride. Suffering is how we prove out our new creation life and our new creation nature. We don't suffer to get near to God. As new creation believers, we don't make a big deal about Lent here. I don't mean the lint in the dryer. I mean the Lent right before Mardi Gras. We don't make a big deal about that. Why is that? Because I, I'm actually embracing a life of Lent every day. I'm called to embrace a life of, uh, of taking my self-will and my rebellion and my, my disobedience or my pride to the cross, putting it to death every day. Every day is a Lent day for me. I, I'm not going to have a Lent and a Mardi Gras. So it's not, it's not suffering to get near to God. It's suffering because we really are holy creatures. We really are born from above. We really are made new. We really are knit to Father. We bear the image of the Son. We really are separated from the demonic realm. You and I, we live separated from sin, from the demonic realm from the clutches of iniquity, from the power of darkness, we live separated from that. So it's a, it's a suffering that I enter into and that I choose. Because it's fitting for one who's been recreated in the likeness of holiness. Amen? We're going to close and worship as we do. I, I know we want to greet Chris and Brianna and, We've got fellowship in the foyer. But I'm going to open the front. I'm going to allow you to come and just correspond with the Holy Spirit this morning. Anything He's talked to you about setting aside, or following Him in, embracing that trust, that love, that reverence, that obedience. Holy Spirit, we just say yes to you we're glad to be your kids and we're glad to embrace a suffering that results in the proving of our righteousness the proving of our faith as those who are new creations we ask you to coach us we ask you to help us we ask you to lead us we ask you to hold us draw us into the grace that is ours in the cross we thank you for it in Jesus name everybody said